Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet is uh, Doug and Erica, and uh, Gabby and uh, Tiffany are not going to be with us today. They both have other engagements, so we'll miss them, uh, but it, we have some good topics to, to cover today. Um, our general topic is uh, children's health, um, so we'll be discussing the health and wellness of infants and children. Uh, what are the best, best things to feed your baby? Uh, how can someone optimize prenatal health and breastfeeding? And what components in the surrounding environment can compromise your child's health? So we'll be going through uh, those things and more, including some information from Sayer G, uh, greenmedinfo.com. And uh, we'll be ending up uh, today with the, uh, a recipe for homemade baby formula, which Doug is going to cover for us. So uh, starting us off, we're going to connect the dots with some info from the news. And I think Erica wants to start with a, uh, some information here about how Wi-Fi is making your kids sick. Yeah. So picking up from previous shows, we've discussed Wi-Fi before, especially in our May 20th, or excuse me, April 20th show with Larry Bowers about EMF exposure. And it seems like since we've done that show, more information has come out. One of them is Wi-Fi is making your child ill. And this was carried in the Telegraph on May 9th um, by Florence Waters. And um, basically, it's this Dr. Erica Blythe. She's the founder of the Physicians Health Institute for uh, Radiation in the Environment. She's a professional advisor on medical conditions related to radio frequencies and other electromagnetic fields, or EMS. Her interest in electromagnetic frequency began in 2009 after she noticed increasing trends in certain symptoms, especially in children, um, including headaches, insomnia, fatigue, heart palpitations, and more serious conditions like brain tumors in young people fertility problems in women, and accelerating neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's and autism. She claims in the video or in the article that there's uh, no, um, excuse me, no scientific proof relating to these diseases uh, with radiation. You know, the studies aren't really being done, mostly because of funding issues. But um, that over the years that she's been working with uh, parents, she's been documenting these the prevalence of tech in classrooms, and hundreds of families have sought out Blythe's help with these uh, EMF-related diseases and health issues. In the article, there's a, an associate professor, Ollie Johannesson, and he's a neurologist at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. He's been researching biological effects of radio frequency wireless radiation for more than 30 years. And again, he's had problems getting funding for his research. But he predicts that there's going to be a paradigm shift in attitudes towards EMF or, or uh, radio, radiation frequency. Um, he says, we're currently living in an environment estimated to contain more than 10 billion times more RF radiation 
than we experienced in the 1960s. He says a five-year-old absorbs up to 60 more percent radiation than an adult due largely to thinner skulls and the high water content in their body. In a 2008 study, he found a five-fold increase in the risk of glioma, a form of brain cancer now recognized by the WHO, WHO, World Health Organization, as being linked to mobile phone use. So huh. for those starting mobile phone use under 20 years of age, so these uh, tumors were people who started using mobile phones before 20, um, indicating that the age group at first use is highly significant. So obviously children are being affected by cell phone radiation, but also things like iPads and anything that's using that sort of uh, wireless technology. And we do see this a lot in classrooms, you know, in the UK, this this article specifically, but also in the US, you know, with all this um, need to push technology and want kids to be up to date, but it's obviously having a, a very ill effect on children, much more so than adults even because of, again, their, the thinness of their brain or the skull. Um, there's some additional articles on this topic that came out this week and then in the past. Um, one of them is nearly 200 scientists warn of cell phone health-related risks. And then also, as I mentioned earlier, there's two great fo uh, thought focus series by Larry ba ba Bowers. EMF pollution, what is EMF? And then EMF pollution, EMF power, and magnetic field. In 2010, uh, Rodell Institute put up an article that you can find on the SPOT website called Cell Phones and Temper Tantrums, a possible link. And then in that article, there was uh, three other articles that were linked to it. One called Cell Phone Use During Pregnancy Causes Behavioral Problems. Another one is Cell Phone Use Exposure in the Womb Causes Behavioral Problems. And mm -hmm. then the third one, Warning, Mobile Phone Use While Pregnant Can Seriously Damage Your Child. So, and also, please check out our previous show on April 20th about EMF exposure, and uh, Larry goes into why this is so concerning for children in particular. And, you know, again, the, that idea that it could be linked to behavioral problems, mood swings, you know, erratic behavior, could definitely see a connection there. Yeah, one of the worst things about it is that uh, you know, I, maybe there aren't too many um, alternatives to cell phone use. I mean, I'm sure you could find something, but, you know, they could just wire up um, these schools. I know there's a big push in a lot of the schools to get Wi-Fi going in the classrooms so kids can have access to the Internet for, for various activities. But, um, you know, it, it could be so easily done um, in a wired fashion without um, exposing these kids to these Wi-Fi signals. So really it's just like, you know, it, it's just pure ignorance that, that they aren't kind of, pursuing these things instead. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I just I, don't think there's a, there's a consensus yet on the fact that Wi-Fi is harmful. I think a lot of people are just completely unaware of that. Yeah, it's true. Erica, you were going to say something there. Sorry. 
Oh, yeah. Well, and also all this, like I was uh, sharing earlier, all this new technology, like these iPads. I mean, you go out and look around and all these babies have why uh, these iPads or these little tablets that they're using. And, you know, the parents are entertaining the child, whether it's out at a restaurant or while driving. And, you know, it just breaks my heart to see I have a good friend that, that does that with a child. And, you know, you want to say something, but it's it's such a touchy subject. And, you know, automatically, whenever you try and give parenting advice, people kind of get a little bit offended or upset. Mm-hmm. And and I just really try and share in it in a way that is not going to make the parent feel, you know, defensive. But at the same time, it's like... I, I, you know, seeing a two-year-old navigate a tablet is great technological-wise, but the Wi-Fi is really scary. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a couple of uh, car commercials where they're they're promoting the fact that, that the car has Wi-Fi, um, like, built into it. And, you know, they're showing, you know, the, the, the a comparison between the kids who don't have Wi-Fi in their car and they're all freaking out and, you know, um, you know, too much energy and just uh, doing all kinds of things, throwing things around. And then they show the car with the Wi-Fi where the kids are just completely absorbed in their like handheld devices, their tablets and everything like that. And, you know, well-behaved because they're completely, you know, um, just mesmerized by these devices. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is terrible. Like, you know, this is this, so this is the way we're going to babysit our children from now on. So not only exposing them to Wi-Fi, but just uh, completely distracting them with these devices. It just seems so crazy. And I I think that there is a relationship with, as children get older, their attention span becomes so short because they're used to instant gratification through mm-hmm. a technological device, you know? And mm-hmm. so that could definitely be why, like that article was saying, you know, temper tantrums and, and there's a physiological effect, but also, you know... Uh, an emotional effect on children and what do you do when your child is temper tantruming you put on the little gadget and it distracts them you know instead mm-hmm. of dealing with the issue at hand so yeah exactly yeah so um eric it looks like you had some uh, some other topics here um for our connecting the docs segment talking about home birth versus hospital birth and the status of midwifery in, in Hawaii. How do you say that? Midwifery? Midwifery, yes. Midwifery. Um, yeah. So uh, on May 6th, um, from HealthNet News, Erin Elizabeth um, put out an article called New Study Shows 79% Increase in Home Birth. And you can find that in the health and wellness section on Thought, uh, basically, a study was done by birthing specialists showing how home births have jumped, jumped 79% in recent years. Of course, doctors are outraged, and one head OBGYN of a clinic asked, why would anyone ever want to have their baby at home? There's an interesting Fox News video in the article, which I recommend those who are interested in, in learning a little bit more about this watch because the interviewer is obviously very against home birth and the doctor that's interviewed does a good job of kind of saying well you know 
the stats are kind of misleading. You know, we don't know how many of these children were born at home simply because they didn't make it to the hospital, you know, for whatever reason. And so um, definitely check that out. Um, another thing that was mentioned in the article is uh, how the author isn't surprised that nearly every mainstream news outlet is reporting this story as stunning and frightening. They interview experts who say how incredibly dangerous it is to have your baby at home and how you should have your baby in a hospital, no matter what. Um, some doctors in the news are blaming the Internet and saying people perceive hospitals as evil and dangerous. And um, I just wanted to add a little bit about that. Um, I personally had both my children in a hospital. This was almost 20 years ago. And um, I did have the first child I had. It was a very scary experience. There was a lot of um, things I didn't understand that was going on. Uh, they were giving me uh, an IV and, you know, they were really treating me like a hospital patient. I had never spent any time in the hospital, so obviously I was scared and stressed out. And um, so this article really hit home for me personally because I have attended births both in hospitals and at home. And I just think it's, again, kind of a, a it's a personal choice. You know, and it's definitely growing. As Jonathan said in the introduction here in Hawaii, a lot of women have their children at home um, with a, a midwife. Uh, midwifery is not considered a legal practice in Hawaii. If you're a nurse midwife, you're, you're protected under the medical establishment. But I know one midwife in particular who's delivered hundreds of babies and who has no nurse background, but who is an excellent uh, person to have at a birth because of so much experience. And she's delivered babies breached and in um, stressful conditions. But what really needs to be made clear here is that for a lot of women, being in the home is the most comfortable place to be. And obviously, mm -hmm. you only want to have a home birth if you have a, a low-risk pregnancy. You know, if you have issues and you need a hospital, a hospital is a great place to be. And even in home births, there is a birth plan set out that in case something does go wrong, you can go to the hospital. It tends to get kind of sticky when you get there because, you know, automatically the doctors are like, oh, this is some home birther, you know, they're a weirdo or they're a hippie or this or that is mm -hmm. the other thing. But the bottom line is that, um, you know, again, if, if it, the woman is healthy and it's a normal pregnancy, being at home is the most comfortable place to be around, you know, family or friends or also in, a, in an environment where the mother feels safe. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I wanted to add a few articles from Sayer G's Green Med Info about this whole topic because like the vaccine topic, it is very hotly debated and everyone has a very strong opinion of it. And I'm personally of the belief that it's again, a woman's choice and the father's choice as well to, to decide whether they want to have a, a baby in a hospital or at home. So one, um, two articles actually both written by the same woman, 
uh, Judy Cohen. She's a certified nurse midwife, so that means that she's a licensed nurse midwife. She writes an article back in 2012 called Why the Fuss Over Home Birth. And I'm just going to read an abstract here that she starts her article out with because I found it really interesting. Back in 2012, the American Journal of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, AJOG, published an article by four medical doctors and one PhD recommending that, quote, all obstetricians and other concerned physicians, midwives, and other obstetric providers and their professional associates not support planned home birth, refuse to Mm. participate in planned home birth, and recommend strongly against planned home birth to women who ask about it. This was in response to the report that while 99.3% of U.S. women delivered in a hospital in 2009, the other 0.7% of births were reported on birth certificates as home births. The AJOG is prescribing one birthing option for all women in all situations. And the author goes on to say that there's expected 100% adherence to a medical protocol ignoring the splendorous diversity of human conditions. Although ACOG has convinced 99.3% of women to give them business, they want 100% monopoly and they won't let go of that other 0.7% of the market. Hmm. And then she goes on to explain why certain women might not want to have a baby in a hospital. And I found these really interesting because I didn't even think about this. Um, She said, how about women that have what's called a white coat syndrome who get high blood pressure when they enter a hospital or women who are immune deficient and who can easily catch non-nosocomal infections in the hospital, women Hmm. with homes built around their physical and or mental disabilities, women who can't urinate, defecate, or sleep anywhere but in their own beds or bedrooms, Women who have never had a vaginal exam and don't want one. Women who fear needles. Uh, The hearing impaired, blind, or women with agoraphobia who never leave the house. Also, women who've never been touched by a man other than their husbands for religious reasons. Women who wear burqas or tattoos and don't want to get flack about it. Women who don't speak English or Spanish. Women who fear birth and fear having a cesarean section or uh, episiotomy. And for those who may not know, a cesarean section is when they have to remove the baby, usually for emergency purposes by cutting open the stomach. Uh, Also, uh, women that are afraid of having strangers in the room. Women who are educated to know, educated enough to know that maternity care in hospitals is not evidence-based women who are aware of the risk to themselves or their newborn of catching a hospital infection that may not be susceptible to penicillin, and women who would rather die than set foot in a hospital, Mm. women who had partners that they have court orders to stay away from and are hiding in unknown locations, and also uh, women who are hiding from abusive parents. She also says celebrities who want privacy and women who know birth is not a disease and want to maintain control over their bodies. 
Mm-hmm. So all those things are, you know, additional factors in why people choose to have home births. Um, the second article that this woman wrote that was really interesting is why home birth is a thousand times safer than hospital birth for low-risk women in the U.S. And um, she has a YouTube video for anyone that may be interested. Um, it's just five minutes. It's called Home Birth is a, a Thousand Times Safer Than Hospital Birth for Low-Risk Women. And she just talks about in this article some of the things that happen in a labor room in a hospital. One of the main ones is if you're in labor and you're there for more than 12 hours, the tendency is to induce labor with pitocin. And what happens is that it tends to cause more stress on the mother because the contractions start coming faster, so it speeds up the labor. Also, another um, important thing that she talks about in here is when a woman's been laboring for 12 to 16 hours and they puncture the the water, the uh, sack that the baby's in to to move the labor along, uh, she calls it rupturing membranes, that that can be um, cause very serious issues with infection, especially in a hospital environment. Also, things like epidurals, this is uh, what they call a saddle block when you're in labor. Obviously, it's very intense, and um, they put a huge needle in your spine to uh, make you numb from the waist down. The problem with epidurals is, A, you have to sign a waiver that if they hit the wrong place in your spine and they paralyze you, that you won't sue the hospital. But secondly, that um, the woman can't feel any sensations. I mean, obviously, yes, you, you, you feel the intensity of the contractions and the birth, but it makes actually pushing and delivering the baby a lot harder on the woman. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then also the, these inductions, you know, they're, um, they're just heavily loading the mother up with stuff that's overwhelming her system and causing stress. And I was in a, a birth last year, and um, two births actually, both in a hospital. And what I'm noticing now is that they're trying to make these hospital environments more friendly because of this growth of home births and people wanting to have their baby at home. So they make it kind of like a living room atmosphere and whatnot. But they still do the same things, like they put a woman on a table laying down, you know, they they got the, the constant monitoring and you got people walking in and out all the time and and it can just be stressful. And um, in the last birth I was in, the mom was laboring for, you know, 12 to 13 hours and the doctor obviously was ready to go. So they induced the labor and within five minutes, the contractions came on so intensely that um, my girlfriend started to go into distress. It was just too much. And then you go through, I can't do this, I hate you, yelling at the husband, Mm -hmm. the whole thing. (laughs) But, you know, the bottom line is that this added stress is going to cause stress to the child and to the mom. And, you know, again, this article has a lot of other things that happen, you know, with cesarean sections and the risk of, um, you know, infections from just being in a hospital, which is 
where you get a lot of like MRSA and things like that. So again, my point being in all this is that uh, it's a woman's choice and really it's great to have the father involved and I really think that it should not be so heavily regulated. Obviously, there's issues where, where babies die both at home and in the hospital, but for the most part, women have been doing this for thousands of years and it's not an illness. Being pregnant is not an illness and having a baby is not you know, being sick and needed to be admitted to the hospital. It's a very natural part of life. And uh, the medical cartel, if you will, tends to really take that over and try and compartmentalize so much of it. So if there's any moms out there that are going to have a baby or looking to have a baby and are interested in home birth and just reading about it, I recommend uh, the book Spiritual Midwifery. Um, by Ina May, and she delivered hundreds of babies at a farm in Tennessee. And what's so great about the book is it's kind of like a little a story of all these women's experiences. But also the farm in Tennessee, if women didn't want their babies, this Ina May and her people would take these children and find homes for them and make the whole birth process not such a traumatic you know, micromanaged sort of experience. So that's about all I have to say on that. Mm. Well, it's fascinating some of the details about that, and I, <clears throat> I think you're right that it does come down to the choice of the mother. You know, that every situation is different. So in some cases it may be better to be in a hospital, in other cases it may be better to be at home, but it, it should be the mother's choice, you know, and, uh, hopefully they won't stray into mandating things like this. Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds like they're encroaching on that in, in Hawaii already, as you mentioned. Yeah, and and also in that article, you know, it's like more of that scaremongering, fear-mongering, like, you know, you don't have the choice. Like, this is what you have to do. And in the hospital, you will get you know, a lot more pressure to vaccinate right then and there as soon as the baby's born. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, the uh, the whole issue of circumcision and, um, you know, and then also this, this idea of uh, infant fe- formula feeding versus breastfeeding. I mean, um, there is what's called the La Leche League in the United States, and they're like a mm-hmm. breastfeeding organization, and they have advocates that come into the hospital and answer questions for new moms about how to get the baby to latch on and stuff like that. But it, mm-hmm. you're just going to be a lot more inundated with outside people trying to steer you in a certain direction. And so, and as I said, with my first child that happened, my daughter was jaundiced, meaning that she was a little bit yellow and they kept telling me to bring her in and they had to take her blood and poke her in the foot. And, you know, a, a day old, two days old, three days old to keep sticking a needle into a baby's foot to take their blood is, is traumatizing for the child. That's why they scream and cry and you know, at the end of it all, they were like, well, if you don't stop breastfeeding, because this is breastfeeding jaundice, you know, your baby could die. 
And it was really scary. You know, I was 21 years old. I had no idea. I, I was told Jeez. that breastfeeding was the best thing I could do for my baby. And then all of a sudden I have all these people telling me I shouldn't do that. And it was just really scary. And I felt very alone and didn't really have a lot of knowledge about it. And I just said, you know, I'm going to continue doing what I know in my soul and genes what's right for my child. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that it wasn't a breast milk jaundice. It was just my daughter had a, a more yellow skin tone. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, just this fear mongering. And I think even at one point, my girlfriend was like, we're out of here. Like, this is ridiculous. Stop terrorizing my friend. She just had a baby, mm-hmm. for God's sake. Wow. Well, yeah. <clears throat> it seems like they uh, they discount the, the importance of this momentous event in, in the mother's life where, like you said, sometimes the doctors want or need to go. I think probably in most cases they just want to go, um, go home, go go to the bar, go play some golf or whatever. And so they induce labor so they can get out, you know. And uh, Yeah, I and think that there's a, such an increase with cesarean sections just for that, you know, like mm-hmm. any amount of little tiny bit of stress and they're like, oh, we got to cut the baby out. I mean, in the U.S., it's like $10,000 to have a C-section. And, yes, most people have some sort of medical insurance to pay for that. But it takes the mom so much longer to recover because they have to cut through the whole abdomen muscle to take the baby out, not to mention they have to put the mom out so she doesn't remember anything. And mm, usually, sure. and I have a few friends who've experienced C-sections, and they were legitimate reasons, you know, the baby's too big or, you know, there's fetal distress, is, um, you know, it took them sometimes six to eight months to heal from that surgery. And mm-hmm. they're, you know, got the effects of the drugs that they've been given afterwards and not even to mention postpartum depression and all these hormones that are flooding your body. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's it's a definitely a touchy subject, and I personally, since I work with a lot of parents and children, just tell people to do their research and you know look into both the pros and cons of each, and then come up with a birth plan. And that's something that happens in like a Lamaze class or a Bradley Hicks class before the preg before the babies do during the pregnancy, where they. They teach parents how to come up with a birth plan. And when you have a birth plan, you decide whether or not you want the epidural, whether or not you want pain medication, which is a big one. You know, they, they're trying to push a lot of pain medication. I mean, when I was in labor, they were like, oh, here's some sleeping pills. Go home and sleep for 10 hours and come back. And I was like, who could sleep when you're feeling like this? Like, <laughs> no, thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, speaking of the uh, <clears throat> anxiety of the mother and of the of the parents, I mean, I'm sure not to you know it. <laughs> the the vast majority of the pressure is on the mother, of course, but we also have the father if, if they are present, you know, and hopefully they are. But these days, you know, a lot of that single mothers are giving birth, but um, there's anxiety on both sides there. And uh, Doug had some information to cover about how parental anxiety is contagious. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So this was um, an article published on Cyblog, written by Jeremy Dean um, on May 16th, and you can find that in uh, the health and wellness section of SOT. Um, and it was basically on a new study that uh, studied over a 1,000 families, 
and they found that uh, anxiety is contagious and can be passed on from parents to children and the other way around, from children to parents. Um, importantly, the catching nature of anxious thoughts and behaviors exists over and above the effects of genetics. So they knew that uh, already that uh, these the, the kind of an anxious disposition can kind of be passed down through genetics. But this study actually um, showed that it, it, it has a contagious nature outside of genetics. Um, Professor Talia L.A., who led the study, um, had this to say. She said, our research, our research shows that even if you have had to cope with high levels of anxiety yourself, it is not inevitable that this will follow in your children. There are many things that can be done at home to prevent or reduce anxiety in children and adolescents. While the natural tendency... Sorry, whilst the natural tendency when your child is anxious is to try to protect them, it can be more helpful to support them in, small talk, in t taking small age-appropriate risks. This will teach them that the world is generally a safe place and they can manage situations that initially seem stressful, developing their sense of mastery and in turn promoting resilience. So by uh, examining families with twins, the scientists were able to remove the effects of genetics using statistics. They found that parents can make children anxious over and above the effects of genetics. Um, anxious children can also pass on their anxiety to parents, even when they were not initially anxious. Uh, Professor Robert Friedman, the journal's editor, said, this study is a landmark because it is the first to clearly establish the early transmission of anxiety symptoms from parents to children, not through their shared genetic background, but rather from the way in which anxious parents raise their children. Parents who are anxious can now be counseled and educated on ways to minimize the impact of their anxiety on the child's development. Um, you know, just uh, going on from this, uh, this would include uh, activities like uh, meditation, for example, um, including the uh, Eru Olis program, uh, the breathing and meditation program that both uh, Eric and I are uh, teachers of. Um, so this program basically is a, a breathing techniques that uh, shut off the sympathetic nervous response, so shut down that stress response um, and promote relaxation. Um, you can even teach this program to children, um, although there are certain sections of the program that you should probably leave out for kids, um, particularly the round breathing portion. But uh, this is a great way to kind of lessen anxiety, um, and it, it kind of teaches uh, kids a better way to deal with their anxiety. So I just thought this was a very interesting article because it shows that, you know, that the stereotypical anxious parent um, is, is passing that on to their kids whether they realize it or not. Um, so very interesting in that one. Yeah, definitely, and it re relates back to that initial birth experience. I mean, you're mm -hmm. setting the tone for the child's life, you know, and I don't know if where you folks are at, but, you know, you've all heard of these, like, rebirthing classes and, like, mm -hmm. get in touch with your birth experience and was it traumatic or not, and, you know, I mean, it really sets the tone the first moments of life, I mean, imagine how traumatic it is just being born and then all of a sudden you're in this world with bright lights and super loud noises and how mm -hmm. the mom is handling the situation is definitely going to affect the baby. And I read somewhere and I can't quote exactly, but, you know, the more stressed out the mom is, the more acidic the breast milk is, right? So there's, ah, there's all these different connections there. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And also having somebody experienced to be there, like in addition to midwives attending births, there's also what they call doulas. I think it's spelled D-O-U-L-A. Mm -hmm. And those are women that have been at several births who are there 
to help the mom with breathing exercises and to even use, you know, visualization techniques and, and talking the mom through this habit. Everyone does it. Everyone's born in this way, you know, uh, calming, like you said, that fight or flight mm-hmm. response, because there are studies that the minute a woman becomes stressed and tense, her whole body kind of seizes up and that can mm-hmm. really labor significantly. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about, um, you know, these matters of choice and how people should be given the choice, uh, we have another topic here for our intro connecting the dots segment about um, vaccine exemptions. And uh, Doug, do you want to cover that for a minute for us? Yeah, sure. Yeah, this was uh, something published on the Collective Evolution website. Uh, The author was Arjun Walia, um, and that was on May 13th. Um, so again, you can find that in the health and wellness section of SOT. And it's just another uh, example of how uh, vaccine hysteria is being ramped up a notch. Um, just a quote from the article here. On Tuesday, the Vermont House of Representatives voted to remove the philosophical, the philosophical exemption to Vermont's mandatory immunization law. As a result, it is now harder for parents to exempt their children from mandatory immunization law on phys- phys- philosophical grounds only. Uh, the Vermont House voted 85 to 57 in a debate that lasted more than four hours in which dozens of House representatives wanted to express their opinion on what has become and continues to become a very controversial and emotional issue. Um, ultimately, parents can still go through the process to have their child exempt from immunization. It will just be harder. For example, they can still attempt to receive an exemption based on religious grounds, and they will most likely have to remove their child from school. As touched upon later in the article, the idea that non-vaccinated children are, uh, are a danger to vaccinated children is based on no science and is only modeled and does not seem to make much sense. Um, so during the debate, Northfield Representative uh, Ann Donahue tried to offer an amendment that retained philosophical exemption but would require parents to consult with a healthcare expert to review information regarding the benefits of vaccines in order to receive the exemption. Um, which many thought was actually a very good idea, but this was voted down 73 to 71. So it was a close, uh, a close one on that. Um, Representative Donahue said, isolating fearful parents in, into homeschooling and using the religious exemption does nothing to protect an unvaccinated person. Um, the author of the article states, in my opinion, sometimes it seems as if these House representatives are lacking information or have not done a thorough enough job examining all the facts and scientific data that's available in the public domain. Rarely is the science on the other side of the coin ever acknowledged. Granted, some vaccines may be effective, but there's no evidence showing that they are necessary and and that all of them are necessary. The idea that vaccination is necessary to protect the whole um, herd immunity is based on zero science. It is instead only modeled. So just another example of how kind of the vaccine hysteria is being ramped up and our rights are being slowly eroded. So um, we seem to be getting closer and closer to mandated vaccinations all the time. Yeah, we've definitely been seeing that in just even our previous shows with our connecting the dots, how it, it, as you said, it's being ramped up and, you know, now the philosophical exemption is basically just your belief system, right? Um, mm-hmm. I will say that, um, I have some experience with that. Um, I've had, I, neither of my children are vaccinated and I've obtained the proper documentation in three different states 
for mm. the religious exemption. And um, basically, depending on the document that you get, uh, the religious exemption is just like a philosophical exemption. The only exception is sometimes they want the name of your church, the phone number of the head pastor, and uh, the location of the church. Um, as I said, uh, three different states, Alaska, California, and Hawaii, have all accepted my religious exemptions. It's never been an issue. I give um, parents advice all the time about it. So you, you just hand the paper to the school or to the um, you know preschool if you have preschool age children, and you just don't make a big deal out of it. Here's my paper. Usually, I, I call it the Jedi mind trick. Just Give them the paper and move on, you know. So I, I know I know every – Alaska was a little bit different, you know, that I kind of got a response back saying, well, we don't – we don't, you know, you don't have a pastor listed here, this, that, and the other thing. And what I did was I went on the Internet and I found a case, um, you know, a court case where a chiropractor had taken this issue to court and he had won, and I just sent them a copy of the court case. You know, here's a court case in your state. They never even brought it up again. So <laughs> it's really just about being go. informed and, and knowing yeah. that um, this is your right. You know, until they make it like a federal mandate, state to state, mm. you can kind of skim through there, you know, just just say no, no matter what, if that's your mm. belief. Mm -hmm. Wow, good work. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. I, I find it curious that there's even a difference between the religious and the philosophical exemption because, yeah. you know, it seems logically, a, you know, a person's personal philosophy would essentially be the same as their personal religious beliefs. Um, but, you know, a lot of the things that the government does don't make a whole lot of sense to me, so I'm sure that they're <laughs> yeah. written down somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's money, you know, I mean, especially yeah. with all the information coming out about, you know, the vaccine courts, and it's really, mm -hmm. the topic is heating up, um, you know, it's all about dollars, really, you know, yeah. right. got to get their piece of meat, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But they've done such a great job of brainwashing the masses that uh, any anybody who exempts or has anything negative to say about vaccines is branded as a as a nutcase. So it just just makes the fight all that much more difficult. Well, and with yeah, the religious well, exemption, you know, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh Day Adventists, and Christian Science, you know, the, those three religions is never even questioned. That's just part yeah. of their belief system, right? So, yeah, 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 exactly. And like you said, Doug, that they're um, you know you're branded as a nutcase. Now you're not just a nutcase anymore, <clears throat> which you know I think nutcases in most people's minds are relatively harmless. Now you're a dangerous nutcase. Yeah, you know, exactly. You're putting the, you're putting the herd at, at risk, and you know you're. I've even heard people say that you want other people to get sick because you don't vaccinate <laughs> your kids, and it's just patently ridiculous. Unbelievable, yeah. And yeah. that just negates it, the whole theory right there, you know. Well, if yeah. your kid is vaccinated, then they shouldn't be at my kitchen be able to get them sick under yeah. that theory. Right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 
No, the whole thing is so ridiculous. It just doesn't make any sense at all. People should actually um, listen to our um, show that we did on vaccines. Um, I can't remember when that was. I guess it was in February, maybe. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was that was a great show. Lots of really good information there. Yeah, and what concerns me is, you know, with all this legal situation that's happening and all these, you know, like I shared, I think it was on that show you were talking about, Doug, about the Head Start, you know, the mandatory vaccinations Mm -hmm. for Head Start, which is a program for low-income children in the United States. You know, then you have the whole scary experience of Child Protective Services getting involved and Mm -hmm. what they call neglect right? So you choose not to immunize your child. Now, all of a sudden, you are on a target list for a potential, you know, neglectful parent because you're not following the medical advice of your doctor or your local hospital. So mm-hmm. that, that to me, is, is kind of the scariest part about it all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, Continuing on with our our topic about uh, children and infant care, um, if you've heard uh, any of our past shows where we've discussed Sally Fallon and the uh, Weston A. Price Foundation, you might be familiar with them. Um, If not, uh, check out WestonAPrice.org, I believe is the site, or just Google Weston A. Price Foundation. There's a lot of really good information there, but... um, Sally Fallon, who's the author of Nourishing Traditions, has a section in the book on feeding babies. And uh, we'll go to Doug for a little bit here on a recap of that from a um, from a traditional uh, high-fat diet-based perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Sally Fallon, like Jonathan said, wrote this book, uh, Nourishing Traditions, which is uh, it was published back in 1999, but it still is uh, very relevant today. Um, it's a great book that has lots of uh, great um, things about diet that are uh, taken from the studies of Weston A. Price. Um, and for those who don't know, Weston A. Price was uh, a dentist. Um, and in around the 1920s to the around the 1940s, I don't know the exact dates, but he traveled around the world studying quote-unquote primitive cultures. Um, and these were cultures where they were still using all the traditional nutritional practices that have been handed down from generation to generation. And he was able to study um, their practices versus modern practices and the difference in their health. Um, it was a pretty unique perspective because those traditional cultures are, are disappearing at, a, at an incredible rate. Um, so this kind of information, the fact that he was able to document it was a real boon. Um, so just, I'm just going to summarize kind of uh, the section she's got on feeding babies because there's a lot of really great uh, information in there. So she starts with conception, um, and she says that it was actually a common practice among these isolated groups to start feeding special foods to both men and women uh, for a period before conception. So some of these foods included uh, organ meats, fish heads, shellfish, and even insects, um, as well as uh, very important animal fats. Um, and the reason for this is these things are very rich in uh, fat-soluble vitamins, vitamins uh, like A, D, E, and K, um, as well as macro and trace minerals. Um, so she says that parents-to-be should eat liberally of organic liver and other organ meats, fish, eggs, seafood, and the best quality butter, um, as well as fermented foods. And this should start six months prior to conception. Now, unfortunately, in this day and age, that doesn't usually um, happen because a lot of times things are, are more of a surprise than anything else. Um, but if you are planning 
Uh, six months prior to conception, these things should start to be eaten. And the fact of the matter is there's nothing in this list here really that isn't something that we recommend on a daily diet anyway. So um, if you're switching over to a high-fat ketogenic diet, um, you're covering your bases anyway. So even if uh, a pleasant surprise kind of comes up, um, you're going to have your, uh, your bases covered. Um, one other thing she emphasizes is the uh, eating of leafy green vegetables, which are high in folic acid. And uh, folic acid is very important uh, for pregnant mothers because it helps um, to prevent sp uh, spina bifida in, uh, in infants, which is uh, a failure of the neural tube to close properly. Um, so enough folic acid ensures that that neural tube is intact. Um, so during pregnancy, she goes on, um, she recommends two eggs per day, uh, bone broth and uh, cod liver oil. Uh, sorry, cod, cod liver oil. Um, and the reason for that just being that they are super rich in nutrients, especially fat-soluble vitamins. The bone broth is giving you all the minerals you need, including calcium. Uh, cod liver oil, uh, very high in vitamin A and vitamin D. So these are all things that are very important for the, um, the building of the fetus, so to say. Um, the egg yolks also, if you get them from pastured hens, are going to have um, high uh, omega-3 fatty acids, which are also very uh, important for the development of the ner uh, nervous system in the brain. Um, so superfoods like high vitamin butter oil, which is um, butter that it comes from cows that are eating fast-growing green grass. So it's very high in uh, fat-soluble vitamins. Um, it's also been... Uh, put through a centrifuge so that the, all the dairy proteins are removed from it. So it's almost like ghee, but it hasn't actually been heated. Um, so that's a, a great uh, superfood to be eating um, anytime, really, but during pregnancy in particular. Uh, she also recommends eating primrose oil, uh, borage oil, or blackcurrant oil, all of which are very high in an omega-6 uh, fatty acid called uh, GLA. Um, she also mentions bee pollen. Uh, bee pollen is very high in a number of different nutrients. Um, I will say, though, you want to watch for allergies. Um, anytime you're taking bee pollen for the first time, you want to start with a very small dose and just watch for any kind of um, reaction, uh, skin reactions, rashes, uh, feeling not so good, that sort of thing, um, and then kind of slowly increase that if you want, if you want to be taking that. Um, she also recommends a mineral supplement, which, again, is always a good idea. Um, Fermented foods are very important, uh, both for the probiotic bacteria that will be passed on to the child during birth. Um, and I, I just wanted to say we had a question in the chat room a, uh, a few minutes ago that asked if, if there was any kind of benefit to the immune system of the child by having a regular um, birth canal birth versus a, a cesarean, and that absolutely is the case. Um, when a baby is being born um, through the birth canal, they are picking up uh, probiotic bacteria from the mother. Um, and this is a very important inoculation process um, because all that bacteria is um, what is, nor is native to the surrounding environment that the mother is in. So by, so by passing that on to the baby, the baby um, already has um, kind of that important uh, bacteria um, and is, is kind of like passing on, here's what you're going to encounter in the environment. So uh, the baby isn't kind of being caught blindsided by what it's going to encounter. Um, fermented foods also have liver-supporting properties and have, uh, are high in B vitamins, particularly vitamin B6, which is important for avoiding morning sickness. Um, and if anybody is suffering from morning sickness, um, one great way to deal with that is supplementing vitamin B6 or taking fermented foods, which are high in them. Um, you want to, of course, eliminate all empty calories like sugar, flour, hydrogenated oils, rancid vegetable oils, caffeine, and alcohol. I mean, this is 
again, a good idea anyway. But um, you have to keep in mind that whatever you're taking in is what you're building your baby with. So uh, all those things are just going to have a detrimental effect. So you want to avoid those at all costs. Um, so post-birth, uh, you need to maintain a good diet for uh, breastfeeding. Uh, you have to keep in mind that breast milk is perfectly designed for the mental and physical development of the child. So um, everything the mother eats gets passed on to the child. Uh, breastfed children are found to be more robust, more intelligent, and freer of allergies uh, and digestive complaints than, uh, than formula-fed infants. Uh, colostrum, which is produ produced in the mammary uh, glands during the first few days, uh, boosts immunity and protects against colds, flu, polio, staph infections, and viruses. Um, sufficient animal products is vital for uh, B12, vitamin A, and vitamin D, as well as all important minerals like zinc. Um, so all of those, again, will be passed through the breast milk to the child. Uh, continue with liver, eggs, cod liver oil, uh, as well as bone broth for calcium. Uh, you want to avoid pesticide exposure at all costs, as this will uh, get passed through the, the, the breast milk. So eating organic, very important. Um, organic foods and grass-fed meats uh, and eggs also provide more omega-3s, which again, vital for brain development. Um, trans fats will accumulate in the mother's milk and interfere with visual acuity and learning in the, in the child. So you want to avoid uh, trans fats at all costs. Um, and she recommends that breastfeeding be um, continued for at least six months to a year. Um, as far as babies are concerned, um, she recommends an egg yolk per day starting at four months. Uh, this implies uh, much needed cholesterol for brain development, as well as important sulfur-containing amino acids. Uh, keep in mind that they must be good quality eggs, pasture-raised, rich in omega-3s. Um, egg white is quite difficult to digest and shouldn't be given until uh, uh, one year in. Um, grated liver can be added to the yolk after six months of age. Uh, and she also recommends a pinch of sea salt be added to the yolk. Uh, salt actually facilitates brain development by activating the formation of glial cells, which help us to think faster. Um, you know, salt, salt is often left out of infant formulas uh, due to the mistaken uh, assumption that it's bad. Uh, salt is very important, especially for brain development. Uh, and actually, you can check out our past show again that we did on salt, um, the importance of salt and busting a few myths on, on the idea that salt is bad for us. Um, do not feed babies cereal grains. Um, this is a very common practice, but uh, babies only produce a small amount of amylase, which is the uh, enzyme needed to break down um, starches, uh, particularly cereal grains. Um, babies just simply aren't equipped to deal with grains until one year. Uh, some say two years. Uh, I, I would say if at all. I mean, it's, I don't think it's really important to introduce cereal grains at all. Um, and anybody who's doing kind of a paleo-ketogenic diet would probably agree. Um, the only carb-digesting enzyme that's produced in a baby's intestine is lactase, which is the milk sugar um, naturally present in breast milk. Um, it's much more suited to, uh, sorry, the baby's digestive tract is much more suited to digesting animal foods. Um, and it has much uh, greater ability to break down fat and protein uh, rather than uh, carbohydrates. Um, at about 10 months of age, you can start introducing meats, fruits, and veggies. Um, these should all be introduced one at a time uh, and watch for reactions after introducing each thing. Uh, you should probably go easy on the fruits too because sugars are definitely not good for children. Um, safe starches like root veggies, sweet potatoes, carrots, turnips, 
um, should be mashed with a lot of butter. Uh, you don't want to overdo it on the orange veggies as babies may have some trouble converting uh, carotenoids into vitamin A. Um, and you may actually see uh, the baby uh, turn a little bit orange um, if, if they're not really able to make that conversion very well. This isn't really a big deal. If, if that happens, you just want to back off on any of the uh, orange veggies and, and kind of reintroduce them some more slowly. Um, Lacto-fermented uh, root veggies are actually ideal um, because they've already been partially broken down, so they're very easy to digest for the baby. Um, but most important of all, do not deprive your baby of animal fats. Uh, they're much needed for growth, uh, mental development. Uh, they need cholesterol. Um, breast milk actually contains 50% of its calories from fat, uh, and much of it is saturated fat. And children need these fats uh, throughout their growth and development, even after they're done breastfeeding. Um, it's very unwise to give your baby any fruit juices. Uh, the sweet taste actually spoils the baby's appetite for actual nutritious foods. Um, apple juice in particular has been found to be quite harmful. Uh, it contains sorbitol, which is a sugar alcohol, um, and it's particularly hard to digest. And there's actually even been studies that show a correlation between high apple juice consumption and failure to thrive in infants. Uh, high fru fructose corn syrup, um, obviously very bad, although unfortunately added to many infant formulas. Uh, any high fructose foods are particularly bad for children. Um, you want to keep your kids away from processed foods as long as possible. I think it's kind of naive to think that you can do this indefinitely. Um, they will probably get um, some kind of processed foods at some point, but the longer you can kind of shelter them from that, the better off they'll be. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, that's a, that's a summary of, uh, of what she goes through there. I'm actually reminded of, uh, I think I brought this up in, in one of our earlier shows, <clears throat> the story of uh, Sacagawea, who was a Native American woman, young woman who helped uh, guide the Lewis and Clark expedition. And mm. uh, the story goes that she uh, she had just had a child uh, when they had hired her to come and help them. And uh, they, this is in the journals of Lewis and Clark, that she was feeding her child uh, raw brains and raw meat. Mm. Uh, and they, they asked her why, and she said the brains are to help him be smart and the beak is to help him be strong. But it was all raw, and uh, mm. I think that's a small kind of anecdotal evidence to that, uh, you know, natural way of feeding things in your environment, uh, you know, animal proteins, animal fats um, yeah. that are really good for the development of a child. Just yeah, interesting definitely. Anecdote. But uh, on that note, uh, Erica wants to touch uh, for a little while on the topic of raising your kids as uh, vegetarians and some personal experience with that. It sounds like, um, Erica, you have some, some information, some knowledge to offer on that. Yeah. Um, well, I was sharing in our discussion before the show just, you know, how you almost have to do all the wrong things before you learn to do the right things. That's kind of my experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I did raise both my children vegetarian for the first uh, five or six years, actually vegan because I am lactose intolerant. So I just mm. kind of went the whole, you know, bore. Um, part of it was I worked in a health food store. I worked in a vegan restaurant. I was surrounded by vegetarian people. So, you know, I kind of went with the herd mm. on that and, um, with, I grew up with a lot of food allergies. Even as a baby, I could not have soy formula or, 
even the regular uh, milk formula. And, you know, my mom was really stressed out. And um, so when I had my oldest child, we were vegetarian. And it's funny because I had all these cravings for things, you know, you, you drive past the barbecued chicken and, oh, my gosh, that smells so good. I want to eat some barbecued chicken. And then it's like, wait, I'm a vegetarian. And, you know, uh, <laughs> here in Hawaii, we have a, a lot of uh, what's called sushi or raw fish. You know, I broke down. I ate raw fish, I will say. It might not have been the best. But my body was seriously craving things that I, that I obviously wasn't getting. And as uh, Doug just shared, you know, mostly those essential fats, right? I was just mm-hmm. having all these cravings. And so, yes, I raised my kids vegetarian. And uh, a little bit about the milk thing, um, when I, I breastfed both of them for about a year, maybe even a little bit longer, but then I had to go back to work and um, I didn't want to give them cow's milk and soy was not really an option and so I opted for rice milk and boy was that the biggest mistake I've ever made you know Mm -hmm. a rice stream had just come on the market and I was like oh it should be fine you know it's what it's rice and it should be okay well it rotted my children's teeth I mean and then I went to look at the ingredients and it had 19 grams of sugar in one cup so that was a you know, a, a big red flag initially. And then uh, another time when I had my second child, uh, we were staying with family and I noticed my daughter had gone into the refrigerator and grabbed a stick of butter and was <laughs> in the closet licking the butter all the way huh. down. <laughs> wow. So talk about, uh, you know, these cravings that were happening. But um so, you know, I thought I was doing the best thing, and, and um, I did write an article for SOT uh, last year about immunizations and kind of my experience with the medical industry and um, constantly being hassled to, you know, get the shots, get the shots. And because I worked at a health food store, you know, I was doing all the natural stuff, and um, I just assumed I was doing the best I could possibly do with the information I had. And it wasn't until we took our kids to Europe in 2003 and they were essentially living on French bread and Orangina, that kind of healthy soda, huh. that it was suggested to me uh, to put my kids on a ketogenic diet because they, their behavior was just out of control. They were fighting all the time. There was, you know, ups and downs and it was, you know, and being in another country, it's stressful and it's kind of funny because I don't speak French and so we inadvertently started eating products with meat in it because I didn't speak the language. And so, um, again, it was suggested to me, put your kids on a, on a keto diet. I don't even think it was called keto back then. It was just low carb or no carb. Actually, it was no carb. And, you know, uh, working in a restaurant where I cooked everything carb, it was really a huge transition. So we came home, got rid of all the grains, and just started buying a whole turkey. You know, I started transitioning with uh, fowl, right, turkey and chicken. And for one, I didn't even know how to cook meat, really. So that was a whole learning experience in and of itself. But I will say, after the first three days, and we cut out all carbs, and I mean no carrots, no vegetables, no rice, nothing, um, I was – told that your child will go through a withdrawal period 
you know, it might take two or three days. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, my youngest daughter was on the floor crying. Mm. I just want some cereal. I just want some rice. You know, like like a drug addict, like uh, going through heavy, heavy withdrawals. But by the third day, it was all gone. And um, I can't even tell you the change that happened. These kids were like different people. They, I homeschooled, so we were always in the house together. They weren't fighting all the time. Their kind of erratic, out-of-control energy seemed to taper down significantly. And, um, you know, it caused a lot of stress for me and my husband because I'm, you know, what do I cook? What do I cook? I don't know. And um, so I just kept at it, and it was really a life changer. And I wish back then that I would have stuck with it. As I was sharing with the guys before the show, the hardest part of keeping them on that diet wasn't me and my husband. It was people in our community, our friends, our family, that felt that we were depriving our children of, you know, the great things in life. Even though we were vegetarian previously, that wasn't really an issue. It was, you know, how could you not let your kid have rice or why can't they have carrots? And so people would sneak. And so it, it was a very interesting experience, and it lasted for, you know, about two, three months. And I even had another homeschool child who I put on the diet as well who was um, overweight, and she lost like 15 or 20 pounds, and the mom was just so amazed at, at the difference in her child as well. But unfortunately, we fell out of it only because of, what seemed to be the um, social pressures around us, you know. So that's kind of my experience with that. Uh, later on, um, a couple of years ago, when we learned about the, uh, you know, low-carb diet, we put our oldest daughter on one, um, and her she was a track runner for her high school. I mean, her performance became amazing, like she started losing a lot of excess weight and people, even her coaches were like, What are you what are you doing? You're 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 like a different kid, you know? So there is so much to it. It's just really kind of trial and error and support. You really need a community and we've shared this before, of people who can support you in your decision and um you know, not to be deterred by by the pressure. And I will say I was definitely deterred by the pressure. It just got to be such a pain in the butt to have to, you know, bring all my own food and no, you can't have a chip and no, you can't do that. You know, it just, I felt like the, the naggy, the naggy mom that was just a, a downer for, for everyone involved. So, but I, I wish I would have, I really wish I would have stuck with it. And I encourage parents, don't lose, faith or hope that, you know, when you see your kids change so radically, especially if you've got tantruming children, um, it really can be such a stress reliever, truly. Yeah. Actually, Erica, we've we've actually got a call um, on the line here. Um, we've got uh, Andrew on the line here, and he, uh, he had a question or a comment to give. Uh, can you hear us, Andrew? Andrew, are you there? Hi, yeah. I think that you guys yeah. are speaking about... Hi, I'm on the line. 
Yes, you are. Yeah. So uh, basically, my question was, um, how does a person get access to organic food? Uh, because one of the things I've noticed is there's a few companies trying to create organic networks to be able to deliver organic food and bring down the cost. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be uh, kind of like a lot of big directories where you can really pick and choose. Uh, what is your uh, regarding being able to access organic food and and people being able to really uh, buy it with buying power to be able to actually get the price down? Yeah, no, it can definitely be um, uh, be be tough uh, depending on where you are. Um, in, in kind of major urban centers, I'm not sure where you are, uh, Andrew, but uh, in, in uh, some major urban centers, it's, it's a little bit easier to find networks um, or health food stores or, or something along those lines to, uh, to get access to these, uh, these good foods. Um, what I actually recommend is that people um, kind of make a, start a relationship with local farmers. Um, again, I'm not really sure where you are and if you have any kind of farmers or farming communities in, in, in the general area, but sometimes taking a trip outside the city to, uh, to a couple of different farms, um, you know, networking with local people to find these farms. Um, a lot of times if you're buying direct from farmers, uh, you can really bring the cost down quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. There are, again, kind of farm share programs and things like that that you can look into. Um, but it can, it, def it can definitely be a challenge, um, and I know people definitely have their work cut out for them. Yeah, Andrew, I'd like to add on that, too. Um, Thanks. Here in the it's, U.S., uh, it's good to hear. They, they have a, an organization called Community Supported Agriculture, CSAs, and um, it's people who work together. I want to make a point about organic food. My husband and I were organic farmers for a long time. We never re received a certified organic status, mainly because it was so expensive to go through the whole process. So you can also buy products uh -huh. that say not sprayed or not treated with chemicals. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be cert certified organic, but as Doug said, mm -hmm. you know, having a relationship with people that actually grow the food. Mm -hmm. um, I know in Europe, where when I've been in the south of France, it's everybody has a garden, and you know, generally speaking, if you can speak the language, you can ask. You know, they don't use a lot of that kind of stuff. But as Doug said, it's it's a very slippery slope, mm -hmm. and um, hopefully in the future we'll do a a, a show about mm -hmm. pesticides and herbicides because it is really very serious and has a lot of negative health effects. Yeah, for so sure. So I hope, I hope that answers your question a little bit. I mean, you can Google I, I in your area. Yeah, go on. Right. Uh, I actually heard an article about uh, or saw an article or a YouTube video that said that most people in the westernized world the so-called westernized world actually have malnutrition. They just don't realize they have malnutrition because all of our mm. nutrients have been stripped out of our soil. Artificial fertilizers that mm -hmm. have been used. And soil rating system online is one of the things I'd love to be able to build. But it would need farmers to be able to uh, contact me and just take the measurements with the correct tools, perhaps being able to find a Kickstarter campaign to mm. uh, 
get the tools to the farmers to actually measure their mineral quality and also have independent experts coming in to measure the mineral quality of their soil so that organic farmers can see to mineralize their soil. Yeah. And also nice. so that people can start realizing you're not allowed to, to do GMO labels right right now, but nobody in the GMO community is going to label it in terms of mineral and minerals in any case. So if people take the other end of the spectrum and say, let's start labeling mineralized levels of food so that people can see what the minerals are that they're getting in their nutrient content, that'll revolutionize the industry because the only thing that grows. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, that's a Kickstarter campaign I would certainly support. Yeah, same yeah. here. A kind of side note is a So a I'm actually calling from Africa. Mm. <laughs> well, there's a big GMO debate going on there as well. And I, Sounds I like there's a bit of a delay on the line, unfortunately. Sorry for that. Oh, no problem. I know in Africa, they've been heavily trying to push the GMO food agenda, and I can't remember the name of the international organization off the top of my head, but they found that small indigenous farming that's been happening, you know, since the beginning of time is what's going to feed people in Africa, that this whole GMO thing is, is a joke, really. Yeah, it's a dead end. Yeah. And what's cool about Africa, it's like a blessing in disguise because unfortunately it is bad that there are so many wars and so many bad things going on. But but the blessing in disguise is that big agriculture hasn't been able to move in to a lot of places. They have tried a lot mm. of places, but not all of the places because it just hasn't been able to, to be stable enough for any kind of farming. And because of that, there's all this massive amount of um, that's just waiting for the right people to come in and say, okay, you know what? We're going to work together with Africa. We're going to make sure that this is done properly. And we're going to provide the tools, the agriculture tools that are necessary and the skills that are necessary to get the produce to market. And I mean, mm -hmm. I spoke with a guy, he's just been given something like $10 million to uh, run a project for just exporting mangoes, just mangoes. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it actually is what can be done people. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot for your call, Andrew. That was very interesting. So I hope that we can chat some more if there's a way to contact you guys. Is there an email address or something that I can use to contact you guys so that uh, I can just maybe send you the concept for the uh, Kickstarter and, and see if there is a an interest in the community for that? Well, have you, um, have you been on the SOT.net website before, Andrew? Sot.net, um, like, I have not been on your website, but I can check it out. Yeah, so um, I do believe on the site there's a way to send um, messages mm -hmm. for the uh, editors. Is that correct, Doug? Do you know? Yeah, um, I believe there is, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, perfect. Yeah, and, and follow the health and wellness section in addition to all the other topics because we um, – Definitely try and keep up with the, the information that's coming out. I know personally I've read a lot about the situation in Africa, and, um, you know, I, I think that, that that paradigm with the shift is, is there, you know, going back to the uh, small farmers and being 
locally available food because uh, it's also most beneficial for gut flora and stuff to eat what's indigenous to your local area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much for the information. I suppose I will say Aquarius tea and hopefully I will be able to get in touch with the right people to put the idea across. Great. Yeah, sounds great. great. Well, thanks a lot thanks for so calling much in. for having me on the show, guys. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for calling. Thanks, Andrew. Goodbye. Keep well. Bye-bye. You too. Well, speaking very of... Cool. Uh, that was very cool. <clears throat> yeah. That's a great idea. That's great. Now, speaking of the... Um, the ingredients that we were talking about in those uh, pesticides and uh, harmful uh, contaminants that are used in a lot of commercial farming, um, kind of connecting back to our topic about uh, infant and child care, um, Doug has some information for us today about uh, from Sayer G from Green Med Info about um, kind of the quote-unquote evil ingredients in baby formula and some of the mm-hmm. problems with that. Yeah. Yeah, some of this information comes from uh, Green Med Info. Some of it actually comes from uh, Sally Fallon as well. Um, so uh, an article on uh, Green Med Info uh, said that clinical research shows that uh, a significant increased risk of the following conditions in formula-fed infants versus breastfed infants. Um, and the list is like 30 different conditions wrong, so I'm just going to pick out a couple of them here so I'm not listing off uh, 30 different things, but allergic rhinitis, aluminum toxicity, atherosclerosis, asthma, autoimmune diseases, cancer, candida infection, uh, colitis, type 1 diabetes, diarrhea, ear infections, eczema. Um, uh, Yeah, the list goes on and on. Fluoride toxicity, um, respiratory tract infections, uh, sudden infant death syndrome. So all of these have been um, uh, correlated with uh, formula feeding uh, versus breastfeeding. Um, Breastfeeding, on the other hand, is associated with the reduction of 70 different adverse health conditions. And this stuff is all, uh, as you know, everything on uh, Green Med Info is all backed up by the research. It's all uh, has clinical studies behind it that have been, you know, peer-reviewed, published in uh, in mainstream journals. So this isn't just uh, kind of wacky conspiracy theory here. Um, a study done in 2004 by the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention uh, found that only 11.3% of infants in the U.S. were exclusively breastfed through the uh, first six months of life. So in other words, uh, 88.7% of infants were exposed to the effects of synthetic formulas during their most critical developmental period. Uh, Breast milk contains a number of indispensable factors not found in formula, and uh, that breast milk changes continually to suit the changing needs of the baby. Um, Breast milk is a living food with enzymes, immune factors like lactoferrin, uh, lysozyme, and secretory IgA, which are immune compounds, uh, prebiotic and probiotics, uh, coenzymated vitamins, amino acid-bound minerals, and uh, hormones like uh, ap- appetite-regulating uh, leptin. Uh, those are not found in formula. Uh, lactose is the most abundant carbohydrate found in breast milk, um, unlike formulas which virtually all contain sucrose, maltodextrin, and high-fructose corn syrup. Um, lactose has a low glycemic index and promotes the growth of beneficial uh, lactobacilli bacteria, such as acidophilus. Um, higher glycemic carbohydrates like sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, 
uh, can lead to growth of putrefying and pathogenic bacteria and yeasts. They uh, suppress the immune system and can induce adverse endocrine changes, uh, such as over uh, secretion or resistance to cortisol, adrenaline, and uh, leptin and insulin. Uh, infant formulas are highly processed at high temperatures, denaturing proteins, and adding carcinogens. Milk-based formulas are highly allerg allergenic, uh, while soy-based formulas contain mineral-blocking phytic acid, growth inhibitors, and estrogenic compounds, which can interfere with the hormonal development of the infant. Uh, Soy-based formulas also lack cholesterol, needed for brain and nervous system development. Um, as far as uh, negative, uh, toxic ingredients go, I know Erica had uh, a few things to talk about on that front. Yeah, so um, I printed out a few um, articles from the SOT database about soy formula, and one of them is, is um, very helpful and just kind of gives some information, and it's called Why Soy Formula, Even Organic, is So Dangerous to Babies. So um, the article, and it's from the Healthy Home Economist uh, back in 2013, so the author starts the article by saying today's generation of children could aptly be called Generation A, where the A stands for allergies. Mm. The article goes on to talk about all the different food intolerances that are rapid and, uh, and growing in children and um, this idea of, uh, you know, formula whether it's soy or milk-based, as Doug was explaining, but basically about 25% of American babies are um, fed soy formula, and um, probably because they have a, an allergy to milk. Um, and he goes on to say why, or Sarah is the woman's name who wrote the article, why soy formula is so dangerous for babies. And I'm just going to talk about these three things. Uh, primary problems with soy formula are, are threefold. They have trispin inhibitors, trispin, trispin inhibitors, phytic acid. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, worst of all, uh, phytoestrogen. And um, and in the article, it's just a little explanation of each. Um, so it's trispin. Is that what you said, Doug? Trispin, trispin. inhibitors, trypsin are proteins yeah. found in plentiful amounts in soybeans, and they inhibit digestion and the absorption of nutrients. They are large in size and require application of high heat um, for appreciable periods of time to neutralize. Um, phytic acid is an organic acid, which, like the trypsin inhibitor, is present in large amounts in soybeans. Phytic acid is present in the outer portion of all seeds and blocks the absorption of critical minerals like calcium, magnesium, iron, and particularly zinc. Researchers studying uh, and testing soy formula in 1967 found that soy formula causes zinc deficiencies in every single infant who received it. Zinc mm. is known as the intelligent mineral because it is critical for optimal, optimal development and functioning of the brain and the nervous system. And then mm. the phytoestrogen or isoflavins present the most serious problem with soy infant formula. These estrogen-like compounds have the potential to disrupt the baby's hormonal system for life. 
And then there's a quote here from the Weston Price Foundation. And toxicologists estimate that an infant exclusively fed soy formula receives the estrogenic equivalent of at least five birth control pills per day. By Mm -hmm. contrast, almost no phytoestrogens have been detected in dairy-based infant formula or in human milk, even when the mother consumes soy products. A recent study found that babies fed soy-based formulas had 13,000 to 22,000 times more isoflavins in their blood than babies fed milk-based formula. So I thought that was pretty revealing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so let's see. Parents wishing to provide the highest quality formula for their baby should breastfeed. Um, but if that's not an option, they should consider a homemade formula from grass-fed milk. Most babies allergic to commercial dairy formula surprisingly have no problem with homemade raw milk formula. And in the rare case where a dairy allergy presents itself with the homemade milk-based formula, a hypoallergenic formula based on homemade broth and pureed meat can be utilized. So just what Doug was saying, basically. And we're going to cover recipes for those at the end. Yeah. And then um, another article that I found here, soy-based formulas containing powerful endocrine disruptors linked to seizures in children, delayed physical maturation, and a host of other health consequences. And basically the same kind of information is is provided there. Animal studies indicate that both uh, that soy, both conventional and organic, contain powerful endocrine disruptors that alter growth patterns and cause sterility. Toxicologists en- estimate that an infant exclusively fed soy formula receives the estrogenic equivalent of at least five birth control pills per day. So that seems to be a theme. Yeah. And then... There's two other articles that I wanted to share, just more for the ridiculousness of them. One of them says, scientists say to delay breastfeeding to improve vaccine potency. And this was carried on the activist post back in 2012. In a study published in the Journal of Pediatric Infections and Disease that anyone can freely read, scientists say that breastfeeding should be halted to improve vaccine effects. The advisory is specifically targeted towards developing and poor nations, as is the norm with massive vaccination campaigns funded by the likes of the Bill Gates Foundation and the United Nations. Perhaps most startling is the fact that children in these nations oftentimes rely on breast milk as the only source of quality nutrition, yet the recommendation states that this is a desirable effect. In fact, a weakened immune system is just what the scientists are looking for to increase the potency and the effectiveness of the vaccine. So it goes on to say, (laughs) shocking, right? Um, scientists stop breastfeeding scientists say stop breastfeeding make way for negative effects what's more is the fact that the researchers seem to indicate mothers should instead choose to give their children synthetic formula 
This is telling as it shows that synthetic formula has nowhere near the immune-boosting capabilities of real breast milk. In fact, it can be quite damaging to the health of babies. In addition to containing toxic ingredients similar to processed foods, like MSG, which we shared in our show last week, monosodium glutamate and excitotoxin, infant formula has been linked to greater risk of sudden death in uh, sudden death syndrome or SIDS and many more illnesses. So yeah, I found that kind of fitting into our topic. It's just completely ludicrous. Yeah, the whole idea is to like get rid of your natural innate immunity that you know is naturally passed on from mother to the the infant and replace it with uh, vaccinated immunity which you know all you have to do is listen to our show to hear all the problems with that theory but it's just unbelievable that they would go this far yeah i mean it's just insanity and especially you know in countries like it said in the article where that is the first and most available free source of food for a growing child yeah, and it's then the, the last ideal article, Yeah. The last article I wanted to share, um, which kind of goes into the whole GMO debate as well, it's called Pediatricians and GMOs, and this is from the Food Freedom Group uh, back in 2012. And um, the author is Carolyn Nance. Uh, she goes on to say, pediatricians are undermining breastfeeding. And I can say I experienced that myself, so it's not a lie. One hears this from mother after mother paraphrasing, even though the baby is nursing fine, I am happy to breastfeed. My pediatrician said I should start the baby on formula at six months. Hmm. Um, And then the author asks, why are pediatricians doing this? Especially since the American Academy of Pediatrics says clearly breastfeeding and the use of human milk confer unique nutritional and non-nutritional benefits to the infant and the mother, in turn optimize infant, child, and adult health, as well as child growth and development. Infant feeding should be considered as a lifestyle choice. Uh, Infant feeding should not be considered as a lifestyle choice, but rather as a basic health issue. Mm -hmm. And so the author asks, why is do you think pediatricians are urging mothers to start on formula? And um, especially since formula can have as much sugar as a can of Coke. Um, yeah. And do the pediatricians well, know that sugar in infant formula is, genet- is likely genetically modified and if so, would have been sprayed with Roundup herbicide, which is strongly linked to birth defects? Um, what else here? Uh, also, in the milk uh, formulas, there could be RBGH, a bovine growth hormone, um, linked to breast and prostate cancer. And then in soy milk, you know, soy formula, it, most of it is GMO, right? Genetically modified. Mm-hmm. Um, and GMO crops have developed like a new pathogen and they've been shown to be linked to infertility and late term spontaneous abortion. Hmm. Um, So the most serious question, are pediatricians not aware that much of the infant formula is genetically modified and linked to sterility and, um, you know, that, that it's an ongoing effect? 
One mm. last thing about formula is that um, it contains polysorbate 80. And if you had a chance to listen to our vaccine show, it's also in vaccines. Um, it's a preferred ingredient uh, in a pharmaceutical industry patent for a fertility impairing vaccine. Perhaps hmm. pediatricians might need to see the formula themselves and grasp the fact that polysorbate 80 is deemed effective enough as a sterilizing agent to be included in a patent to accomplish just that. So yes. evil stuff there, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah I think well, that's all the, I have the whole, there. The whole rats in a laboratory uh, analogy is, is becoming more and more appropriate. It's kind of scary. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I know. I had what I had one other just small thing to share, um, and Doug and I sure. discussed this beforehand. Um, one of the new the campaigns. This article is from 2009 um, on Alternet, but infant formula companies claim they can make babies smarter. <laughs> <laughs> so, in kind of a a, a classic, you know, um, opportunity to sell more of their products. They have now fortified uh, formulas with synthetic versions of DHA and ARA, long-chain fatty acids that occur naturally in breast milk and have been associated with brain development. The oils are produced by Martic Biosciences Corp. Hmm. Corporation from lab-grown algae and fungus and extracted with hexane, according to the oh, company's God. patent application. Hexane is a neurotoxin, right? Um, a growing number of parents and medical professionals believe these additives are causing severe reactions in some babies, and it has been repeatedly shown that taking affected babies off DHA and ARA formula makes the problems go away almost immediately hmm. so yeah that it's just more mad science you know yeah exactly hmm. oh and one thing in the article that uh again talking about you know propaganda uh, uh los angeles times article said ambiguously new evidence favors baby formula um and that they're pushing this baby formula. I don't know if it's still on the market now. I haven't followed up on it, but it just mm -hmm. seems ludicrous, you know, that that this idea that if they add these, you know, synthetic oils to your baby formula, it's going to make your baby smarter. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. trying to mimic what's naturally present in, in breast milk, and they, they end up falling so short on that front. Yeah. Well, we're um, <clears throat> we're coming down on our time. We're not in a super crunch right now. But did you guys have anything to uh, to add before we go to um, Zoya's pet segment? We have a little bit of time if you want to throw any more info in here. I just uh, I, I wanted to uh, quickly cover uh, natural ways of increasing breast milk supply. A lot of people mm -hmm. end up kind of relying on these formulas just because uh, they don't seem to be producing enough uh, breast milk themselves. Um, so I just wanted to, to quickly kind of cover a, a few points on, on natural ways to kind of 
uh, increase the, the um, amount of uh, breast milk that a uh, mother is actually producing. Um, one of the most important things is adequate sleep. Um, if, if a mother is not getting enough sleep, and I know this can be difficult, especially with a newborn in the house, but uh, getting enough sleep uh, has been shown to actually um, increase the amount of uh, breast milk production. Uh, similarly, cutting down on stress. So doing anything possible on that front um, to avoid stress, you know, getting other people to help you and take care of certain things so that you don't, you're not constantly stressed out about these things because stress is highly correlated with, uh, with not making enough, uh, producing enough breast milk. Um, steering clear of alcohol. Uh, there's a myth that alcohol actually increases milk supply, but uh, one study actually found that women who drank one or two glasses of wine uh, took longer to release the first drop of milk and uh, produced less milk overall. Um, staying hydrated, for obvious reasons, uh, very important. Um, also, feeding yourself. Uh, it's been found that uh, increasing your calories from 300 to 500, um, like over and above what you normally eat, uh, is needed for proper breast, breast milk production. Um, and I know that this can be a big thing because a lot of newborn, uh, new mothers are all so concerned about losing their baby weight and stuff, and they're cutting down on uh, the amount that they're eating. Uh, nothing could be more detrimental to uh, producing breast milk. You need those calories in order to pass them on to your kids. Um, there's a couple of herbs out there that have been found to uh, increase breast milk production. The two major ones are fenugreek and blessed thistle. Um, you can find supplements out there that combine those two um, in standardized extract form, um, so you're not having to take like 12 pills a day. Um, also popular, you can find things that are called nursing teas that contain uh, different herbs in them, in them that will uh, increase uh, breast milk production. Um, there's also uh, self-breast massage um, can help with uh, milk production, so just kind of uh, massaging the breast. Um, yourself. You can do this actually while um, the baby is nursing. Um, you want to avoid uh, pharmaceuticals like antihistamines, decongestants, uh, diuretics, hormonal contraceptives containing estrogen, and weight loss medications. Um, a lot of those are things you would want to uh, avoid anyway, but, uh, but particularly when breastfeeding because all those things can actually interfere with breast milk production. Well, um, <clears throat> I see on our notes here, too, that we uh, we had talked about, uh, Erica, you wanted to share some information about uh, the WIC program? Oh, yeah. Um, just as a side note, um, I was explaining how in the U.S. they have a, it's called WIC, Women, Infants, and Children program, and this is connected to, um, you know, uh, basically welfare or SNAP, they call it, uh, uh, supplemental nutrition program. And um, I just wanted to share that uh, the WIC program, while it benefits low-income mothers and children, basically it's a voucher program where they give you vouchers for particularly formula, number one, and then cheese, bread and milk for the mothers. So I just brought that up in our discussion beforehand because, you know, here you think you have this great program that's supplemental nutrition for women, but unfortunately it's supplementing all the wrong things. So that's all I really wanted to share about that. I'm not negating the program. I think it's very important, especially for struggling single moms that need that. 
it's just really frightening after all of our research about what's in formulas and whatnot that this WIC program wouldn't be first and foremost getting these women to breastfeed if they can and um, having support services available for them. Like I shared earlier, the La Leche League or putting uh, moms, particularly breastfeeding moms, because this program is from the first to five years of age. Um, You know, it does say on their website that they include breastfeeding promotion and support, but from my own experience, that doesn't really happen because it's starting to become, you know, not as... uh, popular to breastfeed as as uh doug you had shared those statistics on how many children are actually breastfed that was really shocking Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah that's all i really wanted to share about that you know it really there needs to be a huge shift in in the way that these kind of organizations teach about health because it's really frightening and they're like in the dark ages Mm -hmm. (laughs) well maybe not the dark ages but (laughs) Yeah, so that's all I wanted to share on that. Cool. Well, let's uh, <clears throat> let's take a little time to uh, to go to Zoya. She got a pet health segment for us today. Um, <clears throat> her topic is going to be dun 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 ticks. <laughs> None of us know why they exist. If we had God in the room, we'd ask him why they were made. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, little little joke there, but. Um, yeah, uh, ticks can be a real problem uh, for pets, and uh, not just the annoyance of, of finding them and removing them, but uh, if they do latch on. Um, and here where I live in the northern United States, we have we have quite a problem with them. They're already out this season, uh, so you really have to check yourself after walking through the woods. But let's go to Zoya for about six minutes here, and then we'll be back, and Doug will give us some recipes on uh, Baby Formula from Sally Fallon's book. Mm-hmm. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk about ticks, especially since spring is traditionally thought of as the start of flea and tick season. But unfortunately, this is no more than a misperception nowadays. Thanks to the widespread and increasing climate changes, ticks are a year-round concern. Another thing that should be kept in mind, the different tick species are active at different times of the year, including in the cooler months. For example, adult black-legged or deer ticks, which transmit the agent of Lyme disease and other infections, are actually more active during the fall and winter months. Also recently, the Companion Animal Parasite Council a group that focuses on parasite research and education for veterinarians and pet owners, has released its annual parasite forecast. These forecasts measure and multiply data points to calculate the probability of four important parasite-transmitted diseases, Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, and heartworm. The forecasts show the threat of vector-borne diseases transmitted by ticks continues to be a year-round menace for both pets and pet owners. The Companion Animal Parasite Council has a site, petsandparasites.org, where you can get all the information regarding parasite prevalence regions in the U.S., for example, type of parasites, prevention tips, and other. 
Here are some of the tips that you should keep in mind while taking your animal for a stroll in a park or a forest. Ticks can't jump and don't fall from trees as most people think, but transfer onto hosts when animals or humans walk through long grass, bushes and brush. Therefore, it is also best to walk in the center of trails, avoid vegetation at uh, trail margins. Uh, don't let your dog wander unless it's an open park and you know that it's safe. Wear light-colored clothing when entering infested areas to facilitate visualization of ticks as they crawl on clothing. Tuck pant cuffs into socks to limit access to legs. Perform frequent tick checks when vacationing or visiting tick-infested areas and also after each visit in the park. Just palpate the coat and skin of your pet slowly and thoroughly. If you see a tick on your pet's coat and it doesn't mean, it basically doesn't mean that your pet got bitten and infected, but still, if you see a tick, best to take your pet to the veterinarian including the tick. If you can see a tick attached to a dog and you try to remove it, remember that just pulling off a tick can leave body parts attached to a dog. Ask a veterinarian about proper tick removal and tick control. Basically, to remove ticks manually, use fine forceps to grasp the tick um, as, it, uh, as close to the skin as possible and then directly extract using slow, steady, reward pressure. Gloves should be worn to prevent zoonotic infection in the event a tick is uh, somehow crushed during removal. You may also try applying vegetable oil drop on the tick and wait a bit, as it can fall, uh, fall off by itself. But if it won't, use forceps. Checking your dog for ticks every, uh, after every visit in the park is also very important, because sometimes it takes several days for more serious symptoms to appear such as bloody urine, high uh, body temperature, and lethargy. So if you saw a tick on your dog, take him to a veterinarian in order to receive an anti-tick treatment. Time is of the essence here. One word of caution that some dogs can be allergic to an active ingredient in many tick bite products, uh, imidocarb. Some say that collies and shelties are allergic to it. Some say that they are not. In any case, if you suspect, if you suspect that your dog may be allergic, Ask your veterinarian for a specific treatment protocol that includes antihistamines. Also, if you're going to treat your dog against other parasites too, basically to do a deworming, be aware that certain breeds, such as Collies, uh, Australian Shepherds, Shelties, Old English Shepherd Dogs and English Shepherd Dogs, have intolerance to antiparasitic treatments that contain ivermectin. It's a broad-spectrum antiparasitic drug in the ivermectin family, and treats infections caused by roundworms, uh, threadworms, and other parasites. Dogs of collie ancestry carry the MDR1 mutation resulting in neurological problems when they are given ivermectin. So, uh, intolerance symptoms include uh, pupil dilation, appetite and digestive problems, and drooling, lethargy, motor impairment, trouble breathing, and other. So you just need to remember to ask for, a, for an alternative uh, solution from your veterinarian. Drontal Plus is the safest in this case. Now, as prevention, Dr. Karen Becker recommends using a natural flea and tick defense spray that contains various oils such as lemongrass oil, cinnamon oil, sesame oil, and castor oil.
This blend confuses the sensory chemoreceptor system of the pests and your pet becomes invisible for them, a non-factor in the environment. By confusing the chemoreceptors, pests can't differentiate your pet from the surrounding environment. Personally, I don't know how effective this spray is, but apparently it is even safe for cats that are intolerant and allergic to essential oils. It is also safe for puppies and kittens. Another natural trick that I read about is putting a drop of rose geranium oil in between dog's shoulder blades and a drop at the base of his tail each day before going outside. Apparently it also prevents from ticks seeing your dog as a puppy. Well, this is it for today. Hope you found uh, the information useful. Uh, thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs> All right, thanks, Zoya. It's always good to hear from Zoya and some good information there. And <clears throat> great to be uh, aware of the pests that are out in the uh, the woods and in the brush. Um, I've found a few ticks on my dog over the years and uh, have done, you know, essentially what she recommended there to get them out. And I've never had a big problem with it myself, but I know that it can pose problems. Um, and uh, my brother actually had... Uh, Lyme's disease years ago from a, mm. from a deer tick bite. So it, it's nothing to, to mess around with or to take lightly. It certainly needs to be paid attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Doug, do you want to uh, cover uh, baby food from Sally Fallon's book here? We've got about 10 minutes left, it looks like. Yeah, I'll try and <laughs> hurry through it here. Um, so, yeah, there are there are some instances where mothers can't breastfeed, you know, despite um, working on breast milk production. There could be a number of different reasons for this. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, they need to, in this case, uh, you know, rely on supplement uh, formulas. Um, in, in these cases, it's ideal to kind of make your own formula um, as you can adjust the recipe to more closely mimic uh, human breast milk. Um, it should be based on raw organic milk, um, according to Sally Fallon. Um, this is one instance where, uh, you know, milk is actually uh, recommended by us here on the Health and Wellness Show. Uh, milk is actually made for babies, so um, unlike uh, adults. So um, it should be coming from cows that are tuberculosis and uh, brucellosis free, which, you know, seems to go without saying. Uh, the cows should be fed on green grass and hay, not soy, cottonseed meal, or corn or anything else. Um, she recommends getting it from Jersey or Guernsey cows rather than Holsteins um, because they have a higher butterfat content. Um, uh, properly prepared raw milk um, does not pose a risk uh, for your baby, despite the propaganda that you hear from all the different health agencies. Um, raw milk contains enzymes and antibodies which make it much less susceptible to infection and uh, this being unlike pasteurized milk, which uh, has all those um, beneficial things killed off. Uh, your nose will tell you if raw milk has gone off, but uh, pasteurized milk may actually be contaminated with no, order, no odor at all. Um, raw milk is easier to digest than pasteurized and is less likely to cause cramps, constipation, or allergies in your infant. Um, if you can't get raw milk, then the kind of the second best thing to do would be to get whole, unhomogenized milk. Um, and you should culture it with uh, kaffir grains or pima culture um, to return some of the natural probiotic and enzymes. Um, you can also do milk-free homemade uh, formulas um, that are based on liver, uh, and these would be uh, good in situations where the uh, infant has a, a milk allergy. 
Um, liver can also be added to goat milk formulas since goat milk lacks iron, folic acid, and vitamin B12. Uh, so that's just kind of a way to, to fortify uh, goat milk a little bit more. Uh, human milk is richer in whey, uh, lactose, vitamin C, and niacin, oh, and manganese, as well as long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids. So that's like the DHA that, uh, that Erica was mentioning that these companies are trying to add to their formula rather unsuccessfully. Um, cow's milk uh, is, or sorry, human breast milk is actually leaner in casein than cow's milk, um, which is why maybe goat's milk sometimes might be a bit of a better choice. Um, adding gelatin actually makes the formula more digestible. Uh, and the liver, liver formula also mimics nutrient profile of mother's milk. Um, so I'll go into the recipes here. Um, and again, these, these things are um, kind of designed to, by ideally to mimic uh, human breast milk. Um, so you start with two cups of certified uh, clean raw milk or uh, pasteurized non-homogenized milk that's been uh, 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 fermented, as, uh, as mentioned before. Um, a whole, uh, quarter cup of homemade liquid whey, and you can actually do that by straining yogurt. Um, you can actually put a, a yogurt and cheesecloth, and the whey will strain out over the course of about 24 hours, and then you have uh, just the, the whey liquid left. Um, four tablespoons of lactose. Um, some of these ingredients might be a little bit difficult to source, but I think if you're persistent, you can uh, you can find some sources for them. Um, lactose can probably be found somewhere on the internet. Um, Sally Fallon does have sources in the back of her book, Nourishing Traditions, although this was published in 1999, so some of these might be a little bit out of date. Um, a quarter teaspoon of Bifidobacterium infantis, which is a probiotic. Um, you can find uh, probiotics on the market that are designed for infants, and um, I think all of them, uh, or at least the majority of them, will have uh, the Bifidobacterium infantis strain in them. Uh, two tablespoons of good quality cream, um, preferably not ultra-pasteurized. Uh, high teaspoon, or sorry, a half teaspoon of high vitamin uh, butter, uh, sorry, high vitamin cod liver oil. Um, one teaspoon of unrefined sunflower oil. One teaspoon of extra virgin olive oil. Uh, two teaspoons of coconut oil. Um, and these are all in there just to kind of add in those fatty acid profile that, uh, that, that you'll find in breast milk. Um, two teaspoons of nutritional yeast, and that's added for uh, as a B vitamin source. Um, two teaspoons of gelatin, uh, pre preferably uh, grass-fed gelatin. Um, one and seven-eighths cups of filtered water, and a quarter teaspoon of acerola powder. Now, acerola uh, is a, a berry that is actually very high in vitamin C, so this is added in there to kind of mimic the uh, vitamin C content of breast milk. Um, so the, the process is you add gelatin to the water, heat it gently until the uh, gelatin is dissolved, place all the ingredients in a blender and blend well. Transfer to a very clean glass or stainless steel container and mix well. Um, they, she also includes uh, a meat-based formula. Um, and this, I, as I said before, would be good if there is a milk allergy. Um, so it involves three and three-quarter cups of homemade beef or chicken broth. Uh, two ounces of organic litter, liver, cut into small pieces, five tablespoons of lactose, one teaspoon of Bifidobacterium infantis, so that probiotic once again, a uh, quarter cup of homemade liquid whey, uh, one tablespoon of coconut oil, half a teaspoon of high vitamin cod liver oil, uh, one teaspoon unrefined sunflower oil, and two teaspoons of extra virgin olive oil, and a quarter teaspoon of acerola powder. Um, so in this case, you want to simmer uh, the liver gently in the broth until the meat is cooked through. Liquefy using a hand blender or a food processor. 
When the liver broth has cooled, stir in the remaining ingredients, store in a very clean stainless steel container. Um, so for both of these, to serve them, you want to pour six to eight ounces into a very, uh, very clean glass bottle, attach the nipple and set it in a pan of simmering water, heat until it's warm to the touch, but not hot, um, and shake the bottle well and feed the baby. So those are two alternative um, formulas, alternative to uh, the kind of store-bought formulas that uh, are so uh, lacking in the proper nutrition and have all those anti-nutrients in them as well. Awesome. Hope that was quick enough. Oh, yeah, certainly. certainly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I guess if anybody has uh, questions about that or wants to look into it further, they could probably, well, aside from getting the book Nourishing Traditions, they could look on the Weston A. Price Foundation website, I'm I'm guessing. Is there information about that recipe on the site? I, I believe there is. They, they have a number of articles about feeding babies on there and uh, lots of really good information on them. I think those recipes are included. Cool. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's our show for today. We want to thank everybody for tuning in and uh, really appreciate your time and appreciate our, our uh, chat participants as well as our caller that we had from South Africa today. That was pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll look forward to... Uh, to having everybody join us again next week, uh, Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern. We will be changing the time of the show in uh, June. So we'll give you further updates on that um, on our next show and kind of let you know what you can look for. But uh, for now, uh, next Monday we will be back uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday. So thanks again, everybody. And uh, thanks to our hosts, to uh, Doug and Erica, for being with us. And we'll see everybody next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks.